The following is a conversation with Robert King. King is a war journalist and mastermind behind Netflix's newest hit, Running with the Devil, The Wild World of John McAfee. The Netflix documentary dropped on August 24th and is currently ranked number one in the United States. Uh, King collaborated with BAFTA winner Charlie Russell to direct McAfee's incredible story, which features archival footage from King. And I wanted to talk to Robert because many years ago, we sat around McAfee's table and I listened to Robert and John recount these harrowing days and always wanted to see the footage. And, you know, John always had a very strict rule against Vice Media interviews, which, you know, I discovered uh, the hard way uh, after hearing these stories was a uh, very justified anger toward the outlet's incompetence when he was uh, evading authorities in Belize. And so um, hearing the two of them talk about Vice was, uh, was a very uh, interesting opportunity for me as a former journalist as well. And so, um, you know, also King is not just notorious for this documentary and his work with John. You know, he's a Pratt Institute graduate. He became a war journalist in Iraq. He later worked in Sarajevo and Chechnya and Afghanistan, Albania, Rwanda, Syria, you name it. Uh, he was the only photojournalist on the ground during the fall of Grozny, and his photographs have been used for covers of countless magazines from Newsweek to Life to Time. You know, he was also the director of photography for Vice Media for many years. And so uh, the conversation I, I wanted for many reasons, but mostly to just get a sense of where King's at in terms of the documentary's success, what inspired him to uh, release this footage to Netflix, and uh, also just what's next for him. And um, also his views on the state of modern journalism are, are interesting to me. So uh, without further ado, I give you Robert King. All right, welcome Robert to the third episode of the Curiosity Offensive podcast. I am so delighted to talk to you today. I'm very happy to speak with you, Tiffany. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I gave an introduction to listeners of your background and why you're spectacular and why I really wanted to talk to you today. So I'd love to just kind of jump in. You know, you've got a number one Netflix documentary that's just sweeping the nation right now. I know that's got to feel really, really good. And so my inclination, of course, with our shared history, both with uh, being friends of McAfee I want to dive into that stuff, but before we do, I want to talk a little bit about just nerd out with me um, about journalism. And you know, I wanted to admire your career as a legendary war photographer and war journalist. And you know, I wrote for the Washington Times, you know, political oh, yeah. articles about my opinions, you know, for a stint, and like to call myself a journalist. But what you did truly reminds us of what heroic American journalism once looked like. And so oh, I wanted to ask you in terms of the state of American media, how has war journalism changed throughout your career? Like, what do you think about where it's at right now? Um, I think, well, um, it's decimated, you know, just to try to support, make a living out of it as an independent voice is becomes harder and harder not because of the partisanness of the nation, but the uh, the economics of the business model. Mm. And, you know, so especially like back in the day during film, there was uh, there were different price points and you could still economically go and uh, and have your stories published in Europe and in any country, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, 
you know, all of them, England, without having to pay a tariff. And there's now a, you know, an agency, I call it the agency tariff. So mm. like the, the good example is how bad it was is in Syria, if you were selling photos, the payout is 90 days from billing. So they don't have to pay you for 90 days and you're a hundred percent expense in. And you, basically when you do all the cuts that when all the other tariffs that you pay to get published in different countries, you're trying, they're asking you to recoup your expenses on a 70, 30 split where I'm having to recoup a hundred percent expenses off a of 30% trade set or sale. And wow. as it, the images are digitized and mass produced and, and people have found their own voice with the optics within their phones and other, you know, consumer cameras, uh, the price point for the pictures have gone down. So it's just economically speaking in the beginning. And so it's gone from like literally 500 bucks for a small pick and you're still, that would be a 50-50 split. Now it's 70-30 my way to 10 cents to three pennies. So it's kind of like the uh, iTunes business model. You know, if you sell a billion, uh, but they're not a billion publications. Do you know what I mean? So we kind of, we're getting, so it's a, it's a, it's an economic platform that it's impossible to survive. Even for the agencies, they're losing because they have to pay the, the tariff to the, so the EU tariff. So every time, so if I want to sell a picture and I, you know, you have to sometimes have an agent because the magazines won't, won't deal with independent voices. So it has to be filtered through one of the legacy agencies. And then- Bill? Even today. Still, well, unless you do video because uh, they're, they're, they visually, you know, they're like the, the, yeah. I mean, you have Rembrandts and you have cave drawings and you know, <laughs> so they can't figure out how to get the Rembrandt. Right. And um, so what happens is even those agencies have to go through sub agencies to get published. So mm -hmm. like if bureaucracy you know, somebody, sounds endless. Yeah. My New York agent has to go through a London agent. And then they take a split and you never get paid. And I found with video, it's within 30 days, mm. you know, because of the, that drive for, for moving imagery that, you know, resonates on the, the yeah. digital page and it, it, it has sound and, and the speakers on the computer vibrate and, you know, it stimulates touch. So video stimulates a lot more senses, but it also is a, a more, uh, say it's a more profound way to tell an image, you know, so you're using sound, but with multiple, you're still framing it as a photographer. You're still, you know, so I would always tell people that, you know, what didn't have a background in filmmaking, you know, I've been making films since I was in high school to the photographer that hasn't, you know, that maybe came out of J school and they didn't, you know, if you went into photos, you were photos. Yeah. And then you learn about the ethics, if there mm -hmm. is any, and then video. And so there were two different one, two, two separate departments. And so the best way for the photographer, you know, we're always like this, da, 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 waiting, waiting, waiting yeah. for the decisive moment, you know, we, because it was film and you couldn't just waste film. It was an expensive yeah. product, you know, and you only <laughs> had 36 frames. And then if you had to roll, you know, change roles, you might miss that decisive moment. So you were very critical on when you, 
that decisive moment should be recorded. But with video, I say, just record while you're looking for the decisive moment. And when you hit that moment, hold the frame, hold the shot, count to five, wow. you know, at least hold it to five seconds, 10 seconds, because with TV, they're usually going to cut three seconds off. Hmm. And so when the, this was not possible when I've, I'm 53. So I graduated in 93 and there, we were still in an analog. We're about, I was three years before the digital cameras were, you know, kind of given to photographers that were documenting the Olympics. Yeah. And uh, so after that, you know, there was this small change and the internet came about. And so mm -hmm. this was huge because before we couldn't publish our own stuff. And there were like these innovators at Getty Images that bought these companies called like yeah. Newsmakers by Richard Ellis and, and George DeCarroll and, you know, David Broccoli and, and many others helped create this small boutique agency, but it, it had an online presence. Mm -hmm. And then... And that was uh, Getty? That was Getty that had that? Yeah, Getty bought that. No, Getty came oh, later. Getty bought they, it. They, they, yeah, these, we were into, you know, they didn't innovate much. You yeah. know, they were late to the game even to do moving images. Yeah, I'm almost 40. So I, I went through the, uh, the little whatever cameras we used to disposable cameras yeah and then when everything oh, went digital ones. yeah those are everyone our minds were blown by the digital cameras the big clunky mm -hmm. one yeah and then they got smaller and sleeker um and but that's interesting because you would have sadly what it sounds like to me is and correct me if i'm wrong the early days it you had to go yeah. through bureaucracy to get yourself published and then the internet came along and you would think it would have liberated the industry. And now it sounds like it's right back toward gatekeepers again, where it started. Well, I, you know, it in that way, but, you know, if you look at the decline in print publication, the, the, the social media platforms with TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, mm -hmm. and so many, a few others, they allow for flash mobs. So if you have that's why like John McAfee was so dangerous and so happy when he got a million followers on Twitter, mm -hmm. you know, real followers, yeah. you know, that um, he, it gave him a sense of extreme, uh, gave his voice a, a, a wider reach. Mm -hmm. And, um, and he used it in the right way, in my opinion, to inspire people about non-custodial accounts and let people know, Hey, you know, there's a change coming our way. And it's the change they want is a, to dominate you in a custodial account that they promise you, hey, it builds an, you know, the yeah. principal, you know, well, yeah. who's the principal in this? They are, but they promise you these hope, you know, everything's based upon hopes. Yes. And so the promise is that they hope, but they don't say it, but, you know, that, that your principal will increase. Mm -hmm. but the kick out is the same shit and it will, you know, and so yeah. you're, you're not, so that's the problem, you know? So if you look at the crypto world and you're seeing coins jump 10, 20, 30,000% per uh, year, in some cases, they still yeah. do. They don't hold it that often. Uh, that's because it's a non-custodial account. Mm-hmm. And if you have a custodial account, you're not going to reap those benefits. And then if you have a custodial account and the market drops yeah. and collapses, 
it's like uh, you're going to lose. It's just almost as if I just you know, learned I'm, that through Voyager and Celsius, and I got Celsius and uh, Crow. You know, they ask don't own you your keys. Yeah, don't own your keys. Don't own your crypto. <laughs> yeah, no, and then like this is another good example. Is like Christmas time. I got a phone sent to me from AT and T. And they're like, they, you know, your phone that you're using is no longer going to work on our, no longer going to work on our networks. Wow. So we're sending you a new phone, which I didn't ask for. And, uh, and we're going to, uh, and then they told me when they were going to turn it on and off and demanding that I uh, switch to this phone they gave me. And I didn't want to, the, the camera was bad, but more so I didn't trust what was in the phone. Yeah, I you know, don't why are they why are they targeting me? Nobody I spoke to had been received a new phone. There was mention that these phones were going to be sent. But then I realized, why would they give up such a, a, a golden goose to switch every every they've already dialed this all in. But mm -hmm. now they want maybe some more, uh, you know, 3D mapping, who knows what's in the phone, but tracking, mm -hmm. you know, and right. I live deep in the woods. And so they're like, but you can only call emergency. And I still use the same phone that they told me would not work. So it was all wow. bullshit. And then they were trying to sue me, you know, put me into small claims. And I was like, you know, said no and made a video of me shooting the phone, dedicating it to John. But the point I'm trying to make is I lost my phone number and I lost my access to the exchanges. So if you keep your crypto on the exchange, it's gone and it would and I didn't have much, but, uh, and, and it was happening when it was crashing, you know, it was all very volatile, the market. Yeah. And, but the point being is I no longer had access to my exchanges. Mm -hmm. And then I had to put in a new card with a new number on the same phone that I was using to access all the exchanges. But because it was a new number and a new phone, they got suspicious. And, you know, obviously it's, you got to communicate by bot or, you know, it's not that easy. So it is important, you know, you don't own your coins if you keep it on the exchange and it doesn't have to be, uh, it can be a, you know, a, an effort from AT&T or somebody that doesn't like you, that knows you're doing well in the crypto community that has access to these uh, companies that can direct target you. And so that's, you know, just heads up everybody. Yeah, um, there's me. I didn't, I'm not crying. I didn't lose much. Yeah, and I, I wasn't even, you know, so if you had a lot on yeah. your phone, you would accept that new phone. Yeah, because you don't want to lose your account, but you don't know what's on that new phone. They're claiming, you know, 4G is the new G. And so it's, it's funny yeah. if you look at like spy networks, why is the new G telling the old G that they're no good? You know, so the, mm -hmm. like John was always talking about these dark forces within the intelligence community. This is a great example. You know, yeah. if you, we're already dialed in. Everybody that uses 3G, just look how they got everybody on January 6th. You know, I'm not, but I'm, this is an example, not showing yeah. of support. Right. But you, you see how they, everybody probably within a 20 mile radius pinged on the towers. Mm -hmm. I promise you, you're under surveillance. Oh, 100%. You know, it doesn't matter if you were in Starbucks, you know, you yeah. ping and you're on their list. And so why the fuck do we need 4G? Hmm. Is my question. 
You know, why, why, why were they lying to me telling me my phone won't work? So do you think you're targeted as a journalist? Is it, or is it your associate? Yes. I've been audited many times. I mean, you, you look at the, the, the way the community and the, from the highest levels of office talk about journalists, it doesn't matter Republican or Democrat. And so that filters within the local, you know, community filters into your family to where you, you know, they're, you're their enemy because you what record because I what I I was able to get out of some shithole because I held a camera in my hand and could make a good picture um yes and then and then they target you they follow you they uh audit you they I remember flying back oh I'm already in trouble you know so I don't mind opening up so I was flying back from Chechnya and sitting next to a guy and he was you know I don't know I didn't ask to see credentials but it was long 97 and he's like yeah you know you guys, it must be weird coming back to your hometown, knowing that nobody's ever seen anything like you have or been to Chechnya. So this is, you know, before September 11th, when we all became one again. And so I I was like, no, I really don't think about it that way. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't wear it on my, you know, we hadn't been given a 20 year prison sentence. So it was, you know, now it was, so I never felt, I never had enough people that shared the same uh, experience that I did to where you could even talk about it or like not try to hold people accountable, but just like, you know, have people that, so I was, I I didn't feel alone. I was focused on my work, but what he said was, we always get you by taxes in the end. That was in 97. I was still, I wasn't even 28. I was like 26, seven, 20. Yeah, I was 28. Wow. And so then uh, I was in, you know, fast forward to, well, you look at Murray Colvin, Remy Oshlick, and how they would use their satellite signals from a kind of a CNN safe house to uh, target, to z- you know, to, at least to get a grid for their mortar teams. And then, uh, so that's another example, but we can go back to Donetsk and I guess it was 90, 2014 in Ukraine, I was there filming for Vice. And some some guy got killed. I don't know the details, and but I was filming it, you know. And I made my video, but and so I'd uh, sent it, and then I flew back to. For some reason, I had to come home to do something, say hello. I'd been on the road for a long time, and I get pulled in the Atlanta airport, and they ask me my politics. What are you talking about? I'm not. I'm not. I do not participate in a two party system, sir. And that wasn't good enough. And so he sent me to the hot box to sit. And another agent came in, a civilian, and goes, we want to know about the dead body. And I'm fucking like, I, was like yeah, I didn't mean to be rude. I was like, which one are you talking about? I just walked out of Syria. I'd just been in the Central African Republic. I mean, where there's hundreds you know, of dead bodies. Mm-hmm. So can you give me a little more specifics? And he wouldn't. And so I left. And, uh, and then a few days later, the FBI came to my house. This is for a fucking picture. And it turns out that uh, the district attorney in Donetsk issued a warrant for my arrest. And that warrant went to Interpol. And then Interpol went to the FBI. The FBI calls the field office in Tennessee. And the Tennessee agent comes to visit me. All for a picture. He doesn't even know what the fuck's going on. I'm like, since when do you work for the Russians? 
Yeah. yeah. Why are you doing their dirty work? And it's exactly. not illegal. Are, are we pro-Ukraine, you know, or something? Wow. And, um, and so then, I, then you so so I was like, oh, whatever. That was fucked up. But then you look at John, and how they picked up John, according to the news, was uh, uh, an arrest warrant issued by Tennessee. I believe it was Michael Donovan that signed it mm. at the time. Who was a district attorney of West Tennessee, and you know somebody told him that we want him. At least this is how it looks in the news. Yes. And then that document was given to Interpol and Interpol served that on John. And the funny thing is, or the sad thing, or the most, uh, the most corrupt thing is Tennessee does not have a state income tax. So how could, how could a district attorney, uh, how could the state of Tennessee issue an arrest warrant on tax charges if the state itself doesn't require citizens to pay income tax. Wow, so it's a, as an extension of the IRS. Yeah, but wow. so the point being is, you know, that's kind of weird because all the taxes charges were dropped on John, but there's a, uh, there is a now a, you know. Wait, hold on, you said all the taxes, all the charges were dropped? Yeah. When was this? Can you share more about that? After, I, uh, I, I guess it was, what's that guy's name? Oh, he was indicted with John. Uh, he lives in Texas. Um, yeah, I can't remember his name either. Jimmy? Yeah, I think it was some Jimmy or something. Yeah. So Jimmy, when after Jimmy got, uh, I think he had to pay a fine of 300000 mm -hmm. And then the charges were dropped on John. Maybe because he was dead. But no, the charges were dropped. And I don't even think he owes taxes. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't people trying to sue him. Yes. and are trying to figure out where the estate's going. 100%. You know, they can't do anything because there's a death certificate, lack of, there's no death certificate. So, but the, the federal government from, I think those charges have been dropped. I mean, what did he do that Elon Musk didn't do on Twitter? I think the biggest fleece was Doge in Saturday Night Live at 50 cents to bat that down to a quarter of a penny. Yeah. You know, but why, where's the, where's the injustice in that? I mean, because if anybody got, if anybody did a pump and dump, it was Elon and John didn't really do it. All, what, all he did was innovate, uh, probably because I, you know, whatever, I didn't get to participate, but <laughs> unless, <laughs> you know, to bring CNBC to crypto and yeah. pump and, and, you know, and, and, and whatever. So he didn't say, hey, this guy paid me, you know, 10 billion Doge coins, which is, you know, whatever to say doge on my twitter feed it's absurd yeah. yeah i mean you know he didn't even have a million people and but they went after him uh for that reason but you know really he was using social media as a tool to and he was intimidating authorities yeah. you know so there, there's all there is i i like that that there's a there's a consequence for that mm -hmm. i try not to you know i sell my when i'm I don't have so many problems <laughs> because I'm honest. I'm saying I'm a journalist and this is what I do hundred percent through and through. I don't, I don't do anything other than report for the news. And if, and if governments want to glean data, then they can read the news. Yeah. Doesn't mean I, you know, Oh, you know, they're not going to call me and say, Hey, you know, get here. There's about to be, you know, da da da. But you know, so there's no, you know, 
Let me ask you a question. Well, I'm, I'm separate is what I'm trying to say from you are you're it's the there's a reason why it's its own, you know, its own estate right is yeah. journalists, in my opinion, I have a very sacred view of journalism. And that's why I wanted to ask you what the, the state of it was, um, because it's to me, it's, it's very disappointing. So, yeah, I, it's, well, it's very disappointing. The, the partisanship is horrific. Have you been watching the war coverage out of Ukraine? Um, the reason why I ask is my husband's active duty. He's retiring uh, this year. Very grateful to be done with the empire. Um, the global war on terror has dominated his entire adult life and our marriage. 20 years. You know, yeah. A generation they couldn't do four in Vietnam demanded we give them 20. And 100%. now they want our kids to go to Ukraine. Yeah. It doesn't get any more fucking cynical. It, it's true. And so I really I was watching very closely how the media was manipulating this narrative because I have a lot of friends who are Ukrainian. And I was, you know, tracking through the entire the revolution that took place and all the violence that was there. And I was friends with and working with Ukrainian colleagues during that time. And they were sharing with me how civilian casualties is like nauseating. It's horrific because the Ukrainian yeah. people are some of the most spirited, well-intentioned, you know, truly spectacular humans. And so I, I watched the media really memeify a war for the first time, right? Like they created this heroic model, this, this corporate media empires actively participating in churning what I think is the most sophisticated propaganda that they've ever pulled out for anyone um, ever before. Is that, am I alone in that perception? What are your thoughts on how the media has covered Ukraine? I, well, I think it was their first steak dinner after COVID. Yeah, know, for the world for the whole community. So everybody jumped on it because there was one, it's the first war after COVID. It mm. was after America pulled out. So I think there the the in, the colleagues I know, yes, they they knew that man, we were all struggling, so they weren't gonna miss it, but their intentions were good. Yeah. Um, but I think you know, when you're from what I can see from you know i my opinion is it's hatfield and mccoy's it's a family feud mm -hmm. i don't speak ukrainian i don't speak russian and it's it's like trying to intervene in an abusive relationship when the you know you're where the abused has to stand up for themselves in some way and i think ukraine's done that with a lot of money and help so whether those weapons stay in ukraine which i kind of doubt they will um, that's, you know, another chapter in this ongoing war. I mean, I found that the, the coverage was, you know, content driven. Ah, oh, these great, for you mean, photographers are getting airtime on CNN to promote the New York Times. Yeah. You know, and so you have this like coddle, really, you know, this, you know, wash my back, I'll wash yours. So why does the New York Times need to be on CNN? Mm. Oh, because of leadership. Nobody buys that shit anymore. No. And, um, you know, and so then the, you know, and they don't have a video department. You know, the New York Times should be having their own video department, but they're not that literate when it comes to, and it doesn't cost anything. I remember when they were trying to develop their newsroom, they focused more on how the desk looked than, you know, the technology available. You don't need a desk. <laughs> you chroma key it in. You know, 
And uh, I didn't realize they didn't have a video department. Well, they do. It's like, you know, have you ever heard of it? You know, it's been like 10 years. Yeah, nobody has. Wow. Wow. Have you ever seen a documentary from the New York Times? No. I mean, it's like, you know, so these are lost moments. These are real, these, this opportunity that doesn't hang around, you know, they lock it up again, you know, so you have this explosion of photographers who are great makers of imagery, some of the best, they're getting rid of us while this, they know, first they got rid of the sound man, you know, back in the TV, you know, so now they, so they're chip away at the history of inheritance. And so now that the newsroom is a bunch of people with phones in their hand and they're told, uh, you know, you film and they protest. But if you told them to record an audio, they would, oh yeah, I don't have to go buy a handheld recorder like my daddy did or my mother mm-hmm. or my aunt. And uh, so now, but they don't have any, any um, understanding of cinematic grammar, you know, that was never, cinematic language wasn't a part of J school. It just wasn't. And they, when you, know, you say like, oh, journalism, journalism school. School. sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so they, Interesting. They, they, they've given the world a bunch of illiterates when it comes to cinematic language, you know, and, the, and that's no fault of their own because we as, you know, we are bombarded with imagery and filmmaking. They, they know how to make films. They just don't understand the definitions and the language of cinema and, 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 and the way to transition. Good filmmaking, good filmmaking, quality, yeah. art, art. Yeah, that too. I mean, that can come later, not every, you know, but there's a technique there that is a standardized way of of assembling imagery and and to tell a story, you know, from 180 degrees, there's theories, there's definitions and there are laws. Mm. It's like pronouns, uh, verbs and adverbs and nouns. So that just as the English language and, you know, the language, the written word has structure for Mm -hmm. a paragraph well, a scene is built the same way. Oh. And, see that? and as a writer, I can see that. Yeah. And then if you're a writer, your stories, that's the structure, that's the skeleton of the storyline. Everything. You just illustrate it. And it, yeah. so um, that's, but that moment, you know, and so when they, that ability to record moving imagery with sound was entered into, the DSLR or the handheld 35 millimeter, it was magical because it was affordable and you could go to, you know, download iMovie, Apple would give it to you for free, yeah. even jobs, mm-hmm. what was coming your way. And so, and then everybody's like, oh, well, you don't use Premiere, you don't use Final Cut. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, did you see Metropolis? I think they were using a splicer and scotch tape. And I think yeah. that's <laughs> nonetheless you know orchestras play to that film and they're whining about you know if it's you know premiere or final cut and if you say oh i use iMovie the conversation ends they think you can't make films and uh and that was a form of you know racism in my opinion (laughs) yeah elitism you don't have the right you know edit suite yeah but when you put in your end product, it's still an MP3 or MP4. It yeah. doesn't say what it's, oh, this is a dumb iMovie edit. You know, the <laughs> only problem was with the iMovie, you couldn't process data as much. You know, yeah. So your clips were smaller. 
and that newsrooms don't care and yeah. but the, they don't and so that was the the beauty of it and even 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 iMovie today is updated so it's getting better and better and better yeah and it, it's just a drag and drop edit and, accessible um, the word you said it, it, affordable it's, and accessible is yes. that's so powerful so and, everyone and, yeah, everyone can record what's around them. So what do you see? I mean, we're, um, are you familiar with the book, The Fourth Turning? No. So it's a, it's a really great book. I have it somewhere in here. Um, but it's about a, you know, periods in history go into a pattern, you know, that old saying history, you know, doesn't rhyme, but it repeats or history repeats itself. Well, there's themes throughout history generationally is the argument of this book. And it's written by these historians. Um, it's literally right here on my desk. And so um, for anyone listening to it, I highly recommend this book. But um, in a nutshell, what it says is that, you know, we generationally, uh, William Strauss and Neil Howe, are living through a great disruptive period where institutions are questioned and completely overturned. Some survive. Uh, most have to innovate, um, yes. you know, out of to, to basically avoid irrelevance. And the last time this the, a generation went through this, you know, it was the turn of the 20th century. And so the old kind of understanding, the old refrain in, in circles that acknowledge that structurally as a civilization, we're kind of in the throes of a collapse of sorts, right? And the media is such a, a key pillar because I'm a free speech absolutist. And so I see the media as this protector of the people. And now it's become a co-opted tool of the state, right? And so yes. as these institutions kind of crumble around us or reshape how do you see maybe with like the advent and popularity of things like TikTok or Substack, right? Where people can go on and talk, or even this, this platform here where I can create a yes. podcast with you, we could say whatever we want. What do you see as the future of filmmaking or of, of communication almost about current events? Is it more in to people's hands individualized? And are we going to create these yes. enclaves and bubbles? Or does the media have to reinvent itself as an institution? What do you see happening? Well, I see it a lot, you know, where if you went work for the media, they own your image, they own your email account, they they sell ads to your to you that they branded as one of theirs. Mm -hmm. So these independent, like your blog, you you're 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 it's your viewership, they're your people, you are the voice, you're the mm -hmm. brand, you know, your voice is the you know, the the and the you know, it's like the a digital. A round table or you know a square you know where people come into the town square to talk and gather mm -hmm. so it, it it makes we're more independent so me personally i like as a, what i look at what i try to do innovate is you know i believe that we consumers of information are accustomed to a controlled broadcast it's got the ticker symbol it's got the watermark on who it's from but I think, and because of the geodata leak that was pinned on me and then the problems that I, when I realized you could really no longer trust the people operating in the newsroom only because of the partisanship of the nation. So you're destined to get tossed under the bus because it's a partisan world now. So I would rather take my newsroom into the war 
and be independent and then mm. and give that technology make it i think it should, should become more decentralized and then it would you know then you bring them in as independents and try to find a, a forum or a format where well, maybe like youtube but maybe a little better there's going to be so much better there's going to be holograms i mean we're at the beginning of something that's very disruptive and beautiful i know? agree but you have so, an optimistic view. You share my optimism. Well, I, yeah, I love it. I mean, I do too. Okay, that's good. Hard, hard to keep us down, isn't that? Then that's why you're so inspiring. Thank you, know? you. It is. It really is. And I, I truly see a decentralization occurring, um, rather than you know the the people who are pessimistic. I, I think obviously argue there's going to be nothing but corporate media. There's only going to be one byline, one accepted narrative. And I just don't see they're trying. they're trying, but, but especially for Americans, you know, it's almost like this, this rise of the Gen Z anti-free speech mentality, right. Is going to, is going to run directly opposed to the American tradition of don't tell me what to think. Right. Wow. And those two are going to butt heads and we'll see what happens from it. But I am raising my children to question everything and to never that their trust and then again you've got the element of distrust of the institution of the media in general being very very high right and i i watched the decline of that too because when you were talking about um you know basically being stalked by alphabet agencies as a journalist you know i remember laura poitras and Glenn green glenn greenwald and all of those early filmmakers that, you know, especially the guys who went against Obama when he tried to pass the NDAA, which some people are not familiar, he attempted to attach to the, the National Defense Authorization Act in 2012, a provision that basically said, if you were a journalist and you were associating with an associate of a known terrorist organization, you could be indefinitely detained. And it took Daniel Ellsberg and- Naomi Wolf and all of these journalists to literally file a lawsuit against the Obama administration saying you cannot do this, right? And, and so I remember watching American journalists become slowly targets of the state, right? And so it's, yes. it's just peculiar to see almost, I think we're heading toward a decentralization trend because of all of these factors kind of coming into one, that the state is making journalists the enemy. And so then everyone kind of becomes a journalist. Does that, does that resonate with you too? I, I hope that's the case. Okay. That everyone becomes a journalist. I, I, I when you yeah. mentioned the Gen Z, you know, it's very, you know, there's a reason for that because their parents were sent on a 20 year fool's errand after September 11th. And, yeah. and so their children were indoctrinated by their parents who were extremely conservative and the ones that sent us on this errand. And uh, so now we have this anti-press generation, anti-free speech kind of very easily offended they want safe space. They need, you know, and I think that, you know, racism is shit. It's bad and it's, it, it causes war and conflict and pain and it's generational and it's repressive. Um, yeah. and, and, and they, but they ask you, they encourage you to identify yourself as a victim mm -hmm. instead of somebody that is a uh, over, 
came come the victimization. You know, so first you want to identify. I remember my sister in Atlanta, they have a wall in her school and they want every uh, body that has been offended by a white person to write those words on the wall in the mm -hmm. school instead of trying to heal. Yes. You know, instead of trying it's to very find divisive. And common ground through music and art and other it, things. It confuses me. Yeah. yeah, it's not how we were raised, right? You're a couple years older than me, but I was raised to admire and revere this Harriet Tubman energy of fuck you. Do not yeah. tell me that I am less than you. Do not tell me that I am these things. Who do you think you are? I know who I am. The, the James Baldwin energy of fuck you, I, no way. And you're not going to treat me this way. You're not going to isolate or marginalize me. And I was, I was a white minority growing up in Houston. And so I was around racism truly for the first time when I moved to Dallas. I mean, tr like racism where white people were being racist against a, a woman of color, my friend back then, right? I, at, at that point, I was always the target of the racist jokes because I was the white girl, right? And so it, it just, I saw in my generation, what I was hoping is that we would begin to move towards seeing each other as truly human to human, right? Yeah. And then a, and dismantling the old order of, of racism through just working together, loving each other, laughing with each other, befriending each other, sharing common spaces in a, a shared culture, dancing together and eating together, that commiseration that humanity is what I hope we would be moving toward. And now it seems we're kind of going backwards. Complete opposite. You know, I mean, once again, the Gen Z were raised by the last generation of segregation. So when mm -hmm. I came back from Germany, I didn't recognize my country. I was like, what the, how the hell did this happen? We used to be, we still are the freest nation yes. in the world and probably the history of humanity. We but, are, yeah. Um, it, it had changed. I don't, I don't remember. Everyone was so sensitive and like, you know, you know, you don't, you're not allowed here. So we're already, they're instituting segregation and everyone is, you know, and everyone now is, seems to be living segregated lives. And, and, you know, the, the, the New York times, I hate to keep bringing them up, but they were <laughs> like encouraging people from now on the, when you view imagery, you first have to ask, this isn't even anything about intelligence, is the image maker male, gender, race, religion. That's before you even interpret an image of somebody suffering in the battlefield or whatever. They're asking you, oh, is this a, a female photographer? Is she uh, biracial or, you know, whatever, you know, whatever, what is her race? What is her gender or what are their, they, you know, is it, you know, and then it just became... I foreign to me because I studied art. I studied imagery and, and, and Pratt Institute. And there was never, and they'd say, oh, because it was all done by white males. I, I, you know, it's, that's not the case, you know, yeah. in my history. And especially in the history of photography. Yes, it was heavily dominated, but, you know, you can, there are uh, many photographers of different genders and race that have been successful in a career. And it's not, that now when, when the economics of it is, doesn't exist, mm -hmm. they're trying to teach the new generation that it's because you've been repressed of your gender 
or your race or and it's no, the, the economic reality. model has changed it just say no economic model left in it yeah oh so, it's it breaks my heart because i i just i don't know i'm a, i'm a true liberal i don't see the need to isolate people into groups now if there are people from marginalized populations that want to self-segregate i have no problem go for it but institutions teaching this it just i don't maybe i need to educate myself yeah. more on why uh yeah. people who advocate for this feel that it's necessary um because the arguments i've heard up to this point just sound it reminds me of small-minded women or men from the south growing up that would have these very almost childlike notions about other races these stereotypes right which we were taught in the 90s to just always question stereotypes right because that's where those were the the um the law bringers of racism is the, the you know all all people of this x y and z do this right and we were taught to constantly question that and i did um and so I, it's just hard for me to see stereotypes come roaring back yes. and be that's completely crazy. embraced if you're not from that my question. small church in Alabama, you're not making it to heaven because heaven is such a exclusive place. And we it's are the so only true. chosen. I was like, no, you're a fucking redneck in Alabama <laughs> and you might be chosen, but I highly doubt it because you never <laughs> have anything to give back to society. It's true. Like, it's true. In the worst place than when you were given it. And they yeah. stay that, then that so then they bring it to the Gen Z and the new generation. So even this generation is is you know, and it's an indoctrination from the last generation of segregation, in my opinion. You know what I and before we move on to the Maccabee stuff, I do want to say that I hold out hope in the fact that the Gen Z generation and the generation that comes after that is going to be the most desegregated, right? Um, people of all races and ethnicities are marrying each other and having children. And yes, so it's yes. when you when you have this, I think America is the greatest experiment in humanity because you have all wonderful populations together that are breaking those stereotypes that they bring from the mother country to become a part of a culture where they can meet and, and work with people that they never otherwise in any other context would have met and worked with right and then you fall in love and you have kids and so i hope that that is that balances out this um hateful bigoted sad tragic mentality that we have to separate ourselves in order to feel safe as human beings right again self-segregation is one thing people should be able to i don't care who you are you should be able to have your own space and you want to define the rules of what those space that space is and who can come in and who you know go for it that should be everyone's prerogative but institutionally we should not have any form of segregation in my opinion and seeing that it's very jarring to me it's it's sad and nauseating almost it, it is but it you just it's well the good thing is it doesn't matter gender race or religion if you have content in this game content is king and so they you know they're gonna save their ass first so yeah you know, so get out there do the job don't don't buy the bullshit follow your heart trust yourself yes and get it done i love it i love it all right so uh, i want to switch gears so i wanted to kind of um talk about the documentary a little bit, but I want to start off by 
just framing for people who are listening at home who may have not watched this yet. Um, so Robert was one of the masterminds behind the newest documentary uh, about John McAfee, who I worked with and who uh, is a good friend and Robert worked with and is a good friend as well. And one of the key things about this documentary that I want to just kind of come out and say is that in my experience working with John, I've been extremely disappointed over and over again by media portrayals, this almost caricature-esque attempt to define him in labels and put him into this, this box when it's very clear that John did not fit into any box that you could even attempt to put him in, right? Um, and so I felt that your documentary was a very responsible portrayal of this, the prism that was John, right? And you, you showed the good, the bad, and the ugly. And for those of us who are friends with John, who maybe even speak for myself, feel protective of his legacy because I've seen what the media does to it. Um, it has been very rewarding to, to watch a full, full throat portrayal of really where he was and who he was, right? To the best of your ability. Um, I, and so I wanted to just kind of say that out front that I was very pleased to see that you didn't skirt away from the ugly and that you you did, a, I think, a careful job of making it very clear that this was not a titillating you know, portrayal of John in this light in order to sensationalize him. This is truly who he was. So um, you're welcome. And I wanted to, um, I hope you feel proud of the results. So let me ask you, why do you think that Vice shut this story down? You kind of, you guys touch about it on it a little bit. And I saw that you and Rocco have a podcast um, and I started listening to a little bit. You invited me on it. Yeah, I think it's great. Uh, but I started listening a little bit to it, but I didn't get fully through it. So just figured I'd ask you directly. Why do you think that Vice shut down the story? What was their motive in your opinion? Well, there's a, it's very complicated. You know, I just came, like you mentioned the Obama stuff. Uh, so I just came out of Syria and Obama had written, thrown down a couple red lines that were crossed. If not, you know, they just weren't respected. And that's no fault of his. You know, Europe didn't, you don't see Europe taking to the streets when Russia had bombed Syria. But right. if America bombed Syria, um, they uh, take to the streets. So I was already you know, CNN did a lot. So I was getting some high profile, some airtime and I don't, but, and so then I get to John McAfee. So maybe Rocco scooped it from the office. This could be a theory. I don't know. There could have been just a fuck up in his office, a power play because vice was getting new money coming in to create vice TV. Mm. And so they, obviously the office politics, like partisan press, you know, they're going to throw us under the bus while we're out there. And, and, and regardless of the consequences, they don't give a shit. They don't care. They don't, they don't think it through. They don't think that, you know, they're by, you know, I'm gone. I didn't leave. I got a job with them until I could get another job and get out. But I, I definitely had to stay close. Um, so I, is it, was it, did the state department, did Hillary Clinton call him and say, Let's get Robert King, uh, you know, we got to damage his reputation through the geodata because in war people die and they want to find some closure on how this death took place. 
and the geodata leak, boy, that makes it easy. Mm. And so I would have John call people in the in Syria to clear my name before I cross the border. Wow. And so it and then remember I filmed con general, I mean presidents, future kings, generals, soldiers. And I've always sold myself. I lived in Russia for six years, lived in Germany for four. I'm a journalist. I'm not a government a spy. No. And the only people that would drop geodata on locations would be a spy. You know, we would I'd be in uh, Sauter City and with Colonel Valesky, who became general. And we were good friends, but there were mortars coming into his base. They let me sleep there. And they mm -hmm. would regularly... Uh, arrest locals from Mahdi, the Mahdi army that were walking grid patterns in the base for their mortars teams outside. So this mm -hmm. is a real serious situation that they weren't willing to clear up. And, and, and I don't know why, wow. you know, I, I have no clue why, but it, it was, dev it wasn't, it didn't devastate. I had a reputation before vice even existed. Mm -hmm. So my, and, and, my character, I believe, as a, as a representative of the press was known as somebody that is honest. Yeah. You know, the salt of the earth, so to yeah. speak. I, I love it. it. No, that's, that's true. That and, is your reputation. And that, that's not, that's something that has hard won from, you know, healthy decision-making, responsible decision-making and how you handle your job and your business. And I completely agree. So I was just curious. And, because and, there's, and there's a John factor. Yeah. That the story was dead once he escaped Belize and he needed a new, 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 new narrative or a new peak in the film. You know, the, it was up, 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 he escaped and now we're back down here. So mm. how do we get back up? Mm. And, and then whether that was the case or not, I don't think so. If you look at John and I know him pretty well and I know you do, if mm -hmm. you see that footage, he's, you know, his shoulders are bent down. He looks yeah. pretty vulnerable. You know, he's he's actually working overtime to fix it. Because 100%. if you would have been, you know, so you caught those moments beautifully. You really did. Um, so, OK, so d diving deep, too. So can you when I, whenever I heard you and John telling the stories um, back in the day when we had those um, the two visitors from Canada um, that day, I thought that was you know, it was wonderful that we were if you remember that. Yeah, I, I don't remember. <laughs> I was like, no. From Canada, Russian, yeah. Canadian, yeah. I, like, I know. So what? What was that? But anyway, um, yeah. Oh, you so you had sex in front of everybody, and I was like, man, what's going on? I was like, this is crazy. Uh, for the readers at home, in a nutshell, John had some very interesting. A young couple um, visitors. I I won't share my theory right now about who I think they were, but. Um, they were very clearly from Russia and had driven over the border with Canadian license plates um, to talk to John about something, who knows what. But um, but anyways, that, that day, John and Robert had this very spirited uh, just recollection to walk down memory lane of what had happened through the escape. And so, you know, I, as John's communications director, later his chief of staff, and I worked with him on his entire rebrand, because when I took over for John, I think he had 7,000 followers on Twitter, right? And so I was I was the person who worked with him to relaunch his image. And so I had to dive deeply about this escape the moment I started working for him. 
And literally between the two of you detailing vividly all of the ups and downs and watching the film come to life was truly very rewarding. Um, but with all of that being said, I did want to tell you that the, the journey from the cutting room floor of all this footage you had of John to Netflix, right, is fascinating yeah. to me. So walk me through how that, how it all came to life. We had just got deported from the Dominican Republic. Mm. And he was in Spain and we were in contact. I was thinking maybe we were gonna, you know, I would link up with him again. Um, but I, you know, he wasn't revealing his location. So then COVID hit and uh, John was said, hey, I made a deal with Curious Films. You know, this, the reason this docs out is not because, you know, it's just fate. So Curious Films has got the right to do my life story, but he sold it to many people before. Yes, so have. I don't, and I don't think that at that time, I don't know if Netflix was on board. And so then he goes, do you mind sending him the footage? So we made a deal. It's COVID, you know, we're well into COVID and I'm not, you know, yeah. I've been living overseas for a long time. So I'm not getting any, you know, mm -hmm. stimulus from the COVID. I'm just getting, you know, I'm locked down and yeah, living in the woods. And <laughs> so yeah, then he gets arrested. And so the deal was, had been made. And, but then he, he after I've sent the footage, he got arrested. Mm. Okay. And then he got put in jail. And then I don't know when Netflix was involved, you know, in, you know, was it before he got put in jail? Was it after he got put in jail? You know, I don't know what the, the pitch was from Curious yeah. Films, but Charlie, they did a great job regardless of what bag of, you know, ups and downs they were given. But I think they expected that they were going to have uh, an interview with him and, yeah. um, and sit down and talk with him. But then he died in prison, you know? And so that, but, but when he died in prison, they had already made the deal with Netflix. So now they, you know, they're a brand new uh, film. And they're not brand new, they've done some good work. And, but they were, you know, they've never been on Netflix like myself, but, and they made the deal. I couldn't get it across the line by myself. I had to let go of control of it. Mm -hmm. I've held on to it for 10 years. Yeah. LA was too woke to let this film come through their channels. Yeah. So every Netflix office has their own independence. They're autonomous from LA. So LA doesn't get to censor what all that. the other Netflix uh, organizations. So if you're having problems with LA, go to Europe and you'll get your shit on Netflix. Interesting. But, I didn't yeah. know that. Okay. And so... Good. And to speak to people from that, it's like finding a unicorn on the internet. You never see <laughs> it except during a, a brief Skype and that's it. And so you, you need, and so it's very hard to get on Netflix. It's almost impossible. And then if you look at how much I spent on this production, the numbers look phenomenal. You know, it's pure profit is pure gold. Good for um, you. That makes but sense. I, not for me, you know, but just number wise. Yes, of course, <laughs> yeah. of course. Yes. And uh, so I didn't profit off it. I got, co you know, whatever I, you know, but that's the filmmaking. I profit off telling John's story, putting viral eyes on the Spanish authorities to return his body. So the family can have closure is okay. all I, that's what I'm, that's where the success is on this film. Yes. But when he died, I think that forced the narrative. 
So I don't think that they were like, oh, let's write about the geodata. You know, I think that that could have been omitted. And mm -hmm. then, then the crypto side got admitted, you know, and the geodata became more of a focus of the story. And that's how I think it happened. Interesting. Where wow. I became a narrator. They didn't have, they were, the options were limited after his death. Interesting. So I had someone ask me uh, recently, why were you friends with John McAfee? And I thought that was such an interesting question. And so I want to ask it to you. Why were you friends with John? Um, he let me clear my name. And because of that kindness, um, uh, and, 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 you know, and I'm, uh, he didn't find, he trusted me. When you say clear your name, you mean from the vice? Uh, yeah. yeah, I yeah. mean, there would be, there's no reason he should ever allow me back into his life, regardless if I was responsible for it or not. Yeah, it was a Can major you briefly betrayal. explain that to the readers who haven't um, seen the, the film, the geodata situation. The geodata is a embedded uh, geolocation of an image that you send. And so uh, at the time it was relatively new, mostly found in iPhones, but we were well aware of it because of, you know, they've been geotracking in, in Chechnya since Dudayev in 90, 94, 95. I think it was 95, then 97, they were using it. it, but these were external, you know, repeaters, receivers, but nonetheless, now it's in your phone. So wherever you go, your phone can be tracked. And it was not my phone. You know, I just come out of Syria. I'm not, ha I wouldn't have a tracking phone like that. Mm -hmm. So the edit, we wanted to do a story. We wanted to do a picture of John to let people know that we're with him. And, and John wanted it too, because he had fallen off the radar after reporting that he'd been arrested in Mexico and the yes, media was reporting great. this. And so we put the picture up and rock, you know, we're with McAfee suckers, you know, but that was the, that was the vibe of the magazine. We were competing against Goliath yes. and we had our boots on their neck. That's and, the, and that's the vice I respect. The one that got embedded with the Islamic state when no one would go there. That's the vice I knew and respected. That's the vibe I remember for those of you who may not be, you know, media dorks, Vice yeah, 100% was in that space. Vices. Yeah, they were big F you to the establishment uh, back then and, and were doing things that but no that, one else that would got do. them in trouble. You know, their, their ISIS play was, you know, there's a lot of murky shit in that too. Really? Oh, I would love to dive into that because I I just respect and admiration because it was terrifying. It scared my, I was so scared my husband was going to go over there because he was constantly deploying to Afghanistan and, the you know, Syria was just one more war we were going to get involved in and that i had nightmares about that isis documentary after seeing it it was it was wild um for viewers at home it's it's pretty impressive um so thank you for for saying that because um you know i, I definitely liked that you touched on and so did the biographer um john's kindness i got to see a lot of that because he i followed him on the campaign trail and also you know i was responsible for handling a lot of John's fan interactions and just the way he treated people was very gracious as if everyone had value and importance and um I like that you had you know you guys kind of touched on that the kind part of him as well um in the film there is a moment where you show John just completely obliterated um and he was staring up at the moon and i can tell that that is a clip from probably 
uh, a conversation you were having with him where I've also been in your position where <laughs> this the sober, uh, can, you know, the, the sober uh, person in, in the situation. No, nah, not me. Yeah, not you? Okay, well. <laughs> yeah. You couldn't. I, I mean, I, everything happened after 3 a.m., you know? Yes, yeah. of course, of course, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah we, we drank a lot together, but I would eventually yeah. start tailoring down to be the adult in the situation, but I also worked for him. That was my job, you know? Um, so what do you think he was seeking from... I just these drug experiences later in life. And what do you think he was was trying to tap into when he would be get so high on the substances he was using? I telepathy, possibly, but also stimulus, stimulant, because you know, the brain's working slower. There could be forms of, you know, other types of, you know, like a dementia, you know, it's like an Adderall but it was cheaper and it was funner. And, and he, he always experiment, exper, you know, experimented with stimulants. He was looking, you know, I don't know why. I mean, I really, I just, because he could, I mean, what, I mean, what's he supposed to do? He's, he's giving his voice to the people trying to enlighten them with cryptocurrency and the government wants to get him. He, you know, thinks he comes up with the idea of, running for uh president in exile <laughs> but also you know as he as you saw with him you know the closer you get you know it's a chessboard played by addicts in a lot of times so everyone's playing against each other to get to gain his trust and and then then he always dumps the security team mm -hmm. and so then when the the security team's getting pushed out they're going to act out and the new people are going to act out because they want to push other people out to get their team in so they can secure whatever it is they're after. Some people have the right, you know, motivation, but I just would watch it over and over again. How, like, I didn't see it happen in Belize, but he definitely did. And I saw him do it with his women, you know, as a security detail, because that's all he had, but I saw it happen in the Bahamas. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when he, he's having everyone sit down, he was kind of interviewing people for positions. Mm -hmm. And so, you you know, it got dangerous because, you know, that, so I would pull out, you know, a lot of that during that transition because I don't want, because I have to protect the images that I'm making. And if I'm, if the, if the my footage that I record some guy coming for a job interview has an issue with me, he might try to come after the footage and then I, then everything's for naught. And so, and, but it was, it would get dangerous, you know, because I was the eyes and they, you know, nobody loves the press right now. Mm -mm. <laughs> no. And, and yeah, and he would bring me in and a lot of people wouldn't know my combat experience. Yeah. And so it'd be like his little joker in the back pocket. <laughs> you know, get all excited because he knew that we would all get along in the end, but I could hold my own um, and, and not run as quick, you know, yeah. uh, quickly away. But at that time, you know, he didn't have somebody like Jimmy running his press. Yeah. You know, well, I wasn't around when Jimmy was around. Yeah. And know? Jimmy just took what I built and ran with it from what I understand, but I don't actually know. I don't know. I, I don't know. It's Jimmy. The kind of the push out, you know, he brings in yeah. his own team. And then mm -hmm. he had his own meat, like you watch the writer that's, you know, he's selling a book that's eight months out from publication. So, 
And yeah. that was that was how it worked in Tennessee. And then when Jimmy was cut loose, uh, I was back. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah. I, so having again managed a lot of the media for John for a couple of years, I was delighted that you really showed John in his like full Loki. Right. Um, that's the only way I could always describe him as a chaos master. Um, and, you know, as a chaos master, he was typically multiple steps ahead of multiple different people. Um, do you think that him going to Barcelona, which to me seems a misstep in the, in a chaos plan, right? Um, do you think he wanted to get caught by going there? No, it depends, you know. I, and I can't make these accusations. I don't know. Of course, what yeah, I, I'm not asking for accusations. Well, I'm not, I'm I'm asking, I would like to just like speak freely and, you know, it could yeah. be this, it could be that, it could be, yeah. you know, yeah. whatever. But um, I think, and I, and I, but I, I know he like, at least he was claiming he had a couple Chechens and some Turks as his security detail in Spain. Um, and then, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. Uh, yeah. uh, I think, yes, it was a total misstep. I think he misread the situation and he, you know, but I don't know if he had many places where he could go. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I told him to go to yeah, this neighboring nation in Ukraine to go hide out. You know, it's just a lawless little yeah. shithole. And um, <laughs> I thought he would do well there. And uh, <laughs> he probably would have. <laughs> and but he had, you know, and then I don't know what happened. You know, I do know that in Europe they will report you for, you know, the worst thing you can do in Europe is not diddle your daughter, it's to not pay taxes. Yeah. And uh, and that is the biggest sin in Europe. Their taxes, I mean, America's eventually going to get there too, but their taxes are extremely oppressive. And that is. So, um, I mean, so now he's in a place where he's going to get in a place where he's yeah. Gonna yeah, absolutely. Um, unfortunately, I think I had a little bit of lag there. I'm sorry. Yes, that's all right. Are you, uh, can, yes. yep. Can you hear me? Yeah. Sorry about that. I think we had a little bit of a lag there. <laughs> um hopefully Europe. it's not too much maybe get it back on online okay i think are we back i think we're back all right we had a brief technical difficulty but i think we're back um so yeah so i wanted to also um talk to you a little bit about <clears throat> The accusation that Samantha, I think her last name is Vargas, um, made at the end of the documentary where she claims that she got a phone call from John and that he is still alive in Texas. Do you believe her? No, um, I don't. Yeah. I think it was, you know, one, she could be using it to, she's pretty media savvy. She could use her, that platform to, to try to, you know, antagonize Janice. And then me personally, you know, when a mother lies, they usually use the emotions of hope uh, to, to, you know, spin the web. And mm. so it just didn't come off as authentic. 
Yes. Um, I, again, my note here says sounds like a petty jab at Janice to perpetuate the notion that he would contact her after death rather than, you know, um, which is absurd. I have, you know, years of Samantha in John's DMs uh, begging for money. So it's, you know, it, it is par for the course. Um, she also accepted a sizable sum from Showtime to lie in their film. Um, yes. as well. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so moving on. So um, post-traumatic stress disorder is something that I, I, in fact, I even loathe to use the D, right? Because I think post-traumatic stress is a human uh, reaction to shock and trauma and instability. And as a war journalist, you are obviously no stranger to this concept, right? And I have an extensive history of working with veterans. And when I worked with John, I talked to him about post-traumatic stress and I, you know, in some quiet, candid moments, got a couple of, you know, pseudo confessions that he could see the plausibility in my suggestion that a lot of the, this compulsion to medicate is rooted from a post-traumatic stress response to not only the Belizean situation, but to some, some other things that I think just kind of perpetuated this climate of fear and anxiety. Um, you know, knowing what you know and, and seeing what you've seen in your own community and then knowing John, do you think that the drug and alcohol use, the heavy drug and alcohol use was a way to kind of quell maybe some symptoms of post-traumatic stress? I'm not inviting you to speculate. I'm just looking at what your, your knowledge is in your own industry. Um, and then just kind of looking at John and wondering if that played more of a role than we're talking about. You know, uh, yes, it's, it's PTSD is tricky, you know, because it's uh, you're living in the past with PTSD mm. because it's not happening right away. It's something that happened yesterday or years ago. And alcohol, for me personally, is the worst ally for remaining in the present because mm. it forces you to live in the past for me personally. And, um, and then with that brings back, you know, yes, you know, once you're in, baptized under fire in combat, you don't forget it. And it remains as fresh as if it just happened a second ago. So, and then, and I've thought about it a lot, you know, about PTSD and I've struggled with combat stress and um, but you know, one doesn't want to claim PTSD because you get your guns taken away. So in some states, you can't even have a hunting license. Um, but if we look at PTSD and, and a lot of it is repressed memories too. So, you know, some of it will come back and you don't know about it. And, and a good, the example that I tell myself is childbirth. So everyone suffers from PTSD because nobody can remember their childbirth. And that's got to be the most traumatic experience that anybody can experience, regardless of what war you're in, you, you know, you're, you're, you know, so that, so we all have that and the mind is a powerful muscle. So if we can't remember childbirth, that there are a lot of that alcohol and that, that trauma, that real time trauma, it brings up the past. There's nothing you can do to prevent it. That, that I'm a, nothing that I could do other than, you know, repeat stuff that I've learned on how to remain in the present. And a lot of that is looking at your watch and repeating the current time, and, mm -hmm. and believing that somebody loves you. Yes. Um, 
as for John and, and I didn't, I, you know, I'm on the open seas with John. I didn't come to film, interview him about his family life. Um, I had been, seeds had been planted in my head on purpose on, you know, what his childhood was like, but this about our childhood. We just, we had our relationship. It just, I didn't, I mean, sometimes we did, I was, you know, but very rarely did we do it. And he was an ally, you know, so I'm like, oh, we used to, you know, when I was a kid, I could, you know, we would get paper straws and smoke, smoke Folgers crystal coffee. And it was okay. And we could walk around. The parents didn't care. Nobody gave a shit. And it was just a different time. And so John was somewhat offended. And so he laid out a line of coffee and was going to snort it. And I was like, oh, God, you know, I don't, but that was how he was. He was like, well, you know, he, he wanted to, he was a nurturer in many ways. And so he, he, yes. So he had, you know, if he could relate that way, then yes, he could relate to what uh, some post-traumatic stress and, and yeah, having to shoot your own dogs. I couldn't think of a worse type of experience, you know, some, you know, something that you're, you love and something that responds. Such a, for people who don't know, John was a very dedicated dog lover. Um, these animals were, he just loved them very much. And so it was very, that, that alone, um, and also some stories of the early life. I'm sure that, you know, he shared with you and he shared with me that just really do paint, um, you know, I think a picture of, uh, an ideal, one thing we laughed about an ideal candidate for post-traumatic stress. Um, one thing that we laughed about, I had asked him one time, Right. Yeah. I said, um, well, you know, maybe you should see somebody and I could definitely look into my network and find someone that um, I think, you know, would be a good fit. And I recommended something called EMDR, which is a strategy that, you know, helps you do some memory recollection. And he laughed and thought that me recommending him seeing a shrink was the funniest thing he had ever heard. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> Can you imagine who this person would have to be? And he thought it was a joke. And so we started writing a profile of what their qualifications had to look like. <laughs> it was absurd. Uh, and he had me laughing. We, there was a lot of alcohol involved, but um, it was it was still funny because he just was very entertained by the idea that there would be a shrink out there that would that would talk to him about his problem. Um, and the stories, the, the stories he would tell her. Um, you know, John was the freest person that I have ever met. And I, my daughter's middle name is Liberty. I'm in, you know, an eighth generation Texan. I bleed just freedom. Right. And he was truly the freest person that I've ever met because his amount of fucks that he had left to give were so minimal that, um, you know, he just embraced life full throated. And so do you believe that John killed himself? No not a bit, you know, he was, uh, no, even, even when he was, I think he was going to fight for the, uh, crypto community, the right for non-custodial accounts. There was no indication, especially a sober John, mm -hmm. he's not going to, uh, kill himself. You know, he's, he's, there's nothing that around him except prisoners that could harm him. And remember he's a elderly man in prison with a torn Achilles heel 
And he's beloved. Pay his taxes. Yeah, they love him. He's Papa America. <laughs> That's what they say. I, I don't think that it was that easy for him. I think they they talk. You know, he was targeted for being an elderly American who didn't pay his taxes, mm. and most likely killed for whatever reason. You know, there was this. Uh, Janice had reported that he took a prisoner's. Uh, gift that the prisoner's girlfriend had mailed him a pair of underwear and in front of the whole prison i don't know how many people but enough he put on the guy's underwear on his face and just doesn't sound like john but in prison that could probably and everybody was laughing and i don't think they were laughing at john i think they would be laughing at the prisoner who just had his cum rag put on some other prisoner's head. And that's probably really dangerous. I would say extremely dangerous. Um, so if that's the case, but he always, there were, there were people after him. I mean, they're just, they were, I don't know. You don't know who it was, but you could see it in the phone conversations. You could hear it in the voice and him having confrontational conversations with people threatening to release data. And, and then in the Dominican Republic, it was all, you know, obvious. everywhere we went, Jamaica, you know, not Jamaica, but Bahamas, they came after him. Cuba, they came after him. And the DR, they wouldn't even let him off the boat until yeah. they imprisoned us. And then, you know, he had hit his head on the boat. And so we were in the hospital for a few days. And then after that, into the jail. And uh, so, no, I don't think he killed himself. I think that, uh, you know, it's, he, he, you know, why don't we have his body back? You know, and they're trying to blame Janice for holding up the process. And that's just Spain being racist and, and towards our nation and, and towards a, a great uh, individual that gave back to, to the world. And, and it's, they're using, in my opinion, I feel it's like a fear tactic that they use. So see, even if you die, we're not going to give your family closure. And then you see Assange, you know, go across the channel from Spain into England. And there's Assange sitting in isolation. And everybody blames America. But as far as I know, America's not running that prison, Belmar, Belmarsh, whatever it is, where Assange is kept. So I think they, these people, like we've been speaking earlier on, that have the, this platform that social media has provided us, like WikiLeaks was their own platform with the internet and the, you know, www dot. And now mm -hmm. Twitter and John takes the Twitter and it's going viral. They're mm -hmm. using them as examples of trying to instill fear on anyone who might wish to uh, speak their mind and the truth on social media platforms or develop their own websites that contradict the official narrative. Yeah, a lot of people don't really realize how incendiary um, John was toward the federal government. Um, you know, I watched him square off with the FBI on the and um, be very, you know, direct and apparent <laughs> as to what the FBI's priorities truly were, which was not protecting the American people's constitutional rights, right? Um, so kind of wrapping up here, um, you know, McAfee, McAfee's legacy kind of continues to evolve. And it's interesting because I don't I usually never talk to media and I just talked to Bloomberg for the first time um, since working with John and they're doing oh, a very it. what was that? No, we'll speak after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so they're they're doing a long form um, 
conversation, I guess, with multiple people who were involved with John, John's, you know, life. And what impressed me was the fact that they did appear, of course, they're just going to be some sensationalism, but they're definitely appear to be doing some, their due diligence. And I haven't, every other contact I've had from media people who want to talk about John or my experiences or whatever, always have some cheap, quick article they're putting together. And it's not interesting to me. And so um, this, this seemed like it was multiple episodes, long form deep diving. And so, um, but as, as I was talking to Bloomberg, it, I realized that his legacy is continuing to evolve. And, you know, as someone who loved John, I really hope that a responsible, true narrative shows him as this humanitarian in many ways, right? Um, that's my personal hope. What do you hope he is remembered for? As an innovator of, of, of security, obviously, what he should be remembered of his innovations, but also his kindness and love and, and, and an, an example of we all have our faults, you know, mm-hmm. nobody's perfect in this world. Um, and I don't, and despite all our faults, we all families all deserve closure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, and I hope he's, I, you know, I just, I hope he's remembered as a wild and kind man, you know, the, somebody who didn't, uh, kowtow to, you know, the, the administrations of the day, you know, where he's just kissing ass all day and, and trying to make peace with every administration that comes into power. He gave us power. I hope he's remembered for crypto as an innovator in the cryptocurrency space. And, and, and people need to remember, John was in the cryptocurrency space because he wanted non-custodial accounts. He, didn't, he wanted to be able to carry the money that he's paid taxes on in his pocket if he wanted to and not risk it being confiscated. And that's where cryptocurrency came to play. Wasn't, wasn't trying to make billions of dollars in cryptocurrency. He was tired of the bank holding his money and not allowing him access to it. And if they did allow him access to it, it would be in increments. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I hope that he's, you know, remembered as a, a revolutionary, a fighter. Yeah. And, you know, and, and somebody with a kind heart, that, you know, that has a history and that wouldn't shy away from it. I mean, I think he would admit, you know, I don't, I, I, he liked games. He was, I don't, I never found him to deceive or lie. He was, he was a very honest, pretty straightforward man. Yeah. Same here. Same here. Um, Awesome. Well, so what's next for you? What are, what's next for you on your horizon? Uh, Hopefully you're basking in the glory. The dogs I love. You know, I have to, uh, yeah, you know, if I don't get on the road, I have to sell my house. Yeah. And, and you know, it's just a vagabond lifestyle, <laughs> a lot more fight, a lot more battle and a lot more struggle. That's yeah. what I see for me. Yeah. You know, there's no, there was no pot of gold in this industry. You just keep working. I hope to make more films and, 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 and strengthen my hand. I have uh, several people who have come to me who've told me that they have also a ton of footage of John and, um, you know, during some various different periods of his life, and they're not quite sure what to do with it. 
if people, you know, have a significant, um, you know, access to him or something, do you want them to reach out to you? Or are you someone you sure, feel like? I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot more films to be made. Yeah. You know, we haven't even hit the crypto space. hundred <laughs> percent. You know, so that's why I like this film. I mean, thank you, Samantha, you know, for, for at least, you know, giving me the option to go find Elvis in Texas. Um, (laughs) Which I expect you to visit because we're in Austin now. So I'll be there. I'm expecting John to come out from behind the wall. (laughs) Hi, John. (laughs) Texas. Uh, Wherever he is in the universe, he thinks this is all very hilarious. So Uh, uh, thank you so much. Yes, Robert, it's been a true pleasure. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your candor. Thank you for everything you've done to share truly fantastic storytelling. I appreciate you. I consider you a friend and I'm just very grateful that you were uh, here to tell us your story. Thank you so much for having me on and letting me have this opportunity. Yes, thank you so much. Take care.